Welcome to our most recent episode of Faces of Veterans. I'm here. I'm the civilian co-host. I always like to make sure we say that with our veteran co-host. But really, you're the host. I'm just. I feel like I'm just the the microphone no, guy. You're the, no, you're the man. The man. You are the man. <laughs> I'm a man about being <laughs> the man, but. Uh, so we're here. Oh, I'm smacking my gum, and we're here with Stephen Willett. Stephen, good to see you. Hey, you too. It's been a while. It has been. It has been. I know life's been getting in the way for everybody, and yep. we finally got in here, and we've been trying to chase down our guest, Autumn Wright, here. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Autumn is is a Marine, uh, and how long did you serve? I got out in 09. 09. Mm-hmm. And I know we're going to hear all the details of... Uh, your service and where you were and what you're doing. I know if you're friends with Autumn on Facebook every once in a while, you see some pretty cool photos of her uh, deployed back in the day. Yes. Looking all rough and rugged and tough. <laughs> Stephen. Stephen. Yes. Stephen, if you're listening, Stephen fell this morning. and Oh, but it was bad. It was My phone's busted. Yeah. My pride's busted. <laughs> <laughs> That would be, that's always the, the first, don't they say that it goes before the fall though? Yeah. You know, it, it was, it was straight, straight up in the legs, went in the air. If there was my neighbors watching out the window, then they really got a good show this morning. So yeah, yeah it was a good time. Yes. Yeah. So is it true? Does pride go before the fall? Yeah, definitely. Well, no, the fall came first this morning. <laughs> but, yeah. but the pride definitely went right yeah. after. Yeah. It was pretty rough. Yeah. Legs went up in the air, you know. Uh, head bounced off the the corner of the house, uh, back went. Oh my god! Down on the, the porch, and my oldest daughter just stood there with her jaw dropped. She didn't. Let, she didn't laugh at you. I feel like my kids would laugh at me, even yeah, if I had, yeah, no, even she, if I had like blood coming out of my head. They'd be like, ah, "Dad fell." Well, that's the first thing, like, because my, my head bounced off the off the corner of the house. So I when I stood up. I'm like touching my head and I'm like feeling it like, okay. And I'm looking at my hands. I'm like, all right, there's no blood. My, my brain's not coming out the, the back of my head. So that's a plus. Yeah. Um, and, uh, did so you do I, the, did you do the thing where you pop right back up and be like, you know, hands in the air, like, I'm okay. All right. Everybody. I'm not sure if I blacked out for a couple seconds. Oh, wow. I, I, I hit pretty hard. Um, it was, it was by far the hardest I've ever hit my head. Um, and in my tailbone, you'll see when we when we're finished, and I go to stand up. Um, oh, yeah, it's <laughs> slow motion. You start to see. You'll when see. you see, I'm like, go. Is he going to show us? Yeah, uh, show us. <laughs> Stephen, I don't know. I just. It's not that kind of podcast. Stephen. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, the videos later, but no, it's uh, yeah, it was it was a rough morning. All right. Well, we're yeah. glad that you made it down. Appreciate it as always. Uh, sure. Now I appreciate it. It's always being good here. to see you. Yeah, absolutely. And I I probably would have laughed. I just want to say my son fell on the ice the other day, and I buckled over and just couldn't stop laughing at it. He's like, Mom, He's like, you're gonna help me out. I was trying not to pee my pants, and I'm like, I'm sorry. I love you, but this is, you know, it's just... funny. It's it's funny when people fall. If they're really hurt, that's not the funny. But right. It's uh. I'm, I definitely, if I fall, I could be by myself. And if I fall, I definitely do the thing where I jump up and throw my hands in the air and let everyone know I'm okay, even though there's no one there. <laughs> I've done it so many times, like trail running by myself, and I take a big header and I pop right up and do the thing, turn around just in case. <laughs> if anybody's watching, I'm okay. Oh. 
So, well, again, good to see you. Glad you're here. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Uh, and coincidentally, I didn't know before we started, we were talking about before we started the podcast that I had connected you in autumn. Sounds like back in 2020. No, I, I think it was before that. It was, I mean, it was, it was definitely before COVID. Um, and it was when I was really starting to get going with the, mm-hmm. the face of the photography aspect yeah. of this. And, uh, I think you were, yeah, we were, we were trying to connect, uh, local businesses for places where I could go into, um, and, and set up, a basically in a corner, yeah. um, a photo shoot, uh, for veterans. So I want to say that that was, it was around that time. Okay. And it, and for for those of you listening to, if you don't know, Stephen, this is all based off of Stephen's uh, photography project, Faces of Veterans, where he works with uh, veterans around New York State, really, right? Yeah. And uh, goes in and photographs them and kind of helps tell their story. And that was what spawned the idea behind the podcast and brings us here today and with Autumn, who is also a business owner. So, Autumn, t- give us the rundown. Uh, who are you? What do you do? Why are you here? All those things. Um, I am a Bostonian, raised here in Boston Spa, um, graduated in 05 from Boston Spa High School and went into the Marines and did that. Um, got out in 09, bounced around the country a little bit, chasing boys, and then uh, <laughs> <laughs> ended up <laughs> in California and married and you know, got married and then six months later, um, was pregnant and went to Tennessee, ended up there having my son doing beauty school and then ended up coming back here to Boston Spa once my son was two and, um, started my own business as a a salon, uh, for hair and makeup here in Boston Spa. Yeah. What's the name of it? Serafina Divine Beauty. That's right. Serafina Divine. And you are, where in Boston Spa are you located? Right on Route 50 in downtown Boston Spa. So right there on the main drag. Mm-hmm. Oh, very cool. Yep, this is my eighth year of business. Nice, congratulations. Thank you. So you've made it, right? You're past that five-year mark. It's like the... I feel like as an entrepreneur, you're always still trying to make it Yeah. on some level. Well, it's not something you check in and check out of. It's evolving always. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> for sure. And... I mean, I found out that I'm I'm unemployable. That's what I tell people. Okay. Like, I could never work for someone else again. They would fire me day one because I would just be the worst employee, I'm sure. And we, we now call that unemployable. Yeah, I know. I was like, kind of, I've always toyed with the idea of wanting to do like a service job for fun on the weekends, like mm-hmm. just to get out because I work out and work and pretty much that's my life. So I'm like, it'd be so fun to like work in like a service industry and like I've dabbled with it and they're like, yeah, send us a resume. And I'm like... A resume? Like, I haven't written one of those since high school. Yeah. Like, that sounds so crazy. <laughs> it sounds awful. Yeah, it sounds horrible. I'm like, can I just send you a picture and, like, right. tell you about myself? <laughs> like, I'm nice. People will like me. I'll do a good job, I promise. I'm, I'm a hard worker. <laughs> so funny. And, um, and are, are you still doing 75 hard? Yes, I'm on day 37. Day today. 37. 75 hard. If you don't know what it is, look it up. Andy Frisella. Yes. I, I made 10. it to day 20. Nice. And then I forgot to read 10 pages. Oh, it's the worst, man. When I did it last year, 113 days, I kept forgetting to take my selfie three times, mm. including on day 113. See, like, I. 
I struggle sometimes because I, I almost feel like I cheat, but I'm not really cheating because I know it's going to start me over at midnight, but I know I'm not done with my workout until after midnight. So sometimes I'll hit the workout done, but I like, I still have, I'm, I'm not going to be up till one o'clock in the morning because yeah. I got to get my workout in. So I like, it's not really cheating, right? Like as long as I'm like starting my workout by midnight. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's not cheating in my book. I, it, as far as I'm concerned, the day's over when I go to bed. Right. So like right. my within my 24 hours, I'm still getting all of my things yeah. done. I just, sometimes I don't get home from work until 8.30. I got to get my son down, get things in order. And then by the time, and they got to be three hours apart. Like, you know, sometimes yep. I, I'm like, but I'm going to wait until 11 because that's when I have to get my workout in. So I I do it. Yeah. It just goes over midnight sometimes. I'm like, I swear this isn't cheating. I'm doing it. Yeah, whatever. I, I think if you're doing them, you're doing them. I don't think it matters what time it is. No, because what if you work a mid-shift? Right. No, I know. That's what I'm saying. Don't yeah. Go it's within your 12 right. hours of a weakness. Right. You have to get those things done. Mm-hmm. Or 20 hours it's of a weakness. It's not easy, that's for sure. <laughs> I think one of the harder parts, to be fair, is drinking the damn water. We were talking about before we started recording, too. Like, the water is so hard. Like, if I go to bed at 10 o'clock at night, I can't tell you how many times... You're chugging right before bed? Yeah, 9.30, I'm drinking a half gallon of water. I did that last night. Oh, my God. last night. How many times are you up throughout? <laughs> yeah. I well, didn't sleep yeah, last four night. times. Yeah. Absolutely. I don't know. So, are you back to doing it again? I did it... Um, I started it, like, right after Thanksgiving and then finished it uh, February 10th or February 11th. So, I did complete it this time. Uh, the last time, 113 days, I failed... For the third time because of the selfie. And uh, I was like getting ready for work. And I go to Kristen. And I go, oh, I forgot to take my selfie yesterday again. And she just looks at me. She's like, if you start that damn thing over one more time, I'm moving out. Or you're moving out. Or something, something along those lines. You know, I was like, oh, all right. Thanks, babe. Yeah. So I was looking at the like the next phase of it. Mm-hmm. And part of it is like to take a, as cold of a shower as yeah, you Yeah, five-minute cold showers. So I started actually taking, well, one, because cold showers, I guess, is good for the immune system and it's good for um, growing my beard back and it's actually good for the hair. It's good for a lot of things. Yeah. So I, I've actually... It's not good for sperm motility. No, no. I read that. It's real science. <clears throat> yeah. And if you like to shave because you don't want a beard, it actually makes your beard grow faster. So that doesn't help because I have to shave mine. So... You have to shave your beard. I'm like, wait, what? Just look at her. Just look at her. What? She was setting you up, will that? Yeah. So, but no, apparently it's really good for hair growth. Okay. And it's good well, for because the, you like you yeah. get goosebumps in your body. You know, you get the goosebumps because it's pushing the hair out to grow more because that's mm-hmm. the reaction to cold. Your body wants to right keep you from being cold, so it's extending the hair. Mm-hmm. To cut. Sounds legit. Yeah. Did so, Doctor Ray, yeah, no, did you? Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> let's let's bring this back to Autumn, right. Autumn and the Marines here. So, Autumn, uh, give us give us the you're 18 going into the military. Yes, going into the Marines out of high school. Yeah. Yep. Why? Tell us why you, why you did that. <clears throat> um, I graduated at um, 17, and I actually was planning on going to SUNY Canton for veterinary technician. And, um, my mom was not letting me go to college. So <clears throat> that was off the table and I was 17. They made too much money for me to be able to get the financial aid on my sure, own. Sure, sure. So, um, on my 18th birthday, my mom came into my room and told me to get out because I, she was no longer legally responsible for me and I was on my own now. So 
She told me I had one hour to get my stuff and get out of the house. Wow. So I um, told her to give me 10 minutes, and I packed up my little Volkswagen that I bought myself, and I lived in my car for um, a little while. I went and stayed um, with a cousin in Groton um, for a little bit, and that was not working um, with her. I was living in the basement. Um, she was nice enough to let me come out there and try it. She lived in the middle of nowhere. Her husband was in the Navy. Um, he was a submarine officer. And uh, I was, like, sleeping in the basement with, like, a net, like a princess net around me because there was, like, cockroaches and stuff. And after, like, a little bit of that, I was like, yeah, this is not happening. So um, I went back to New York, and um, I did not have a good relationship with my parents at all. Um, very bad growing up on and off in group homes and stuff like that. So um, it was either, you know, great or bad. So this was bad. And so I was sleeping in—I um, was drinking— I was a drinker, um, and I worked at Saratoga Diner, and I also loaded trucks on the night shift in Latham for UPS, and um, I was sleeping in my car a lot, and my boss at the Saratoga Diner found out that um, I was sleeping in my car, so I started staying on her couch, Jess Iskovich. Um <clears throat> She's actually my next to can of my military entry paperwork, but... Um, so I was sleeping in a parking lot one day and somebody knocked on my window and it was a Marine recruiter and he asked if I was okay. And I said, yeah, I just, can I use your bathroom? So I had gone in there and, um, they were really cute. So <laughs> I was like, Hey, look at these guys. And no, you guys are in here. And, uh, so I hung out for a little bit and shot the shit and, um, you know, one thing, I started hanging around, and uh, I knew my life was going nowhere because I was a drinker when I wasn't working, and it just wasn't, I wasn't doing anything. Like, there was no end to just what I was doing. I was just being. And, uh, you know, Sergeant Chapman at the time, I actually went to his retirement party just a few years ago. Um, he had asked me, hey, would you want to enlist? And I'm like, I don't even know what the Marines is like sure, if you can get me out of here before Christmas, I'll go. <laughs> you know, I wasn't, like, grooming myself for the military. I was not in the shape for the military. I was an overweight, drinking, very non-motivated person at the time. Um, he's like, you got to lose some weight before you go in. So I was like, he's like, you got to quit drinking. I'm like, well, no, I'll, uh, we'll, we'll cut down to a can of tuna, a grapefruit, and a beer. So I worked, and I worked until I went in. And I went in December 12th of uh, 2005. And, um, yeah, that was the change of my life, basically. Um, I think I blacked out for the first week. It was intense. Um, but I wasn't, we started with 75 girls in my platoon. Um, we ended up with, I think, graduated with 35 between the amount of females that broke either mentally or physically. Um, but, you know, you just kind of, like, hang on for dear life. Yeah. As far as uh, the mental part, I think I was already groomed for that because I lived in a chaotic home. So I was able to kind of check out when somebody's screaming in your face. So um, I think that part was easy for me. I think the physical was a little bit tougher, but I wasn't in as bad a shape as a lot of about half. I was right, kind of cozy in the middle. Yeah. 
Um, I learned not to stay too far in the front and definitely don't be in the back. So I stayed, you know, just a little bit from the front. And um, it it wasn't that challenging as far as you just think it while you're young. So you just do it. You just do what right. you're told. Try not to make waves and, you know, get it done. Um, I definitely wasn't a squad leader, but I was um, I was doing what I had to do. And, uh, you know, there were times where I feel like, oh, like, um, I'm going to die. But you don't. I think, um, you oh, know. When, those times are that it's just because you're just physically just being pushed to your max? or Yeah. I think with the anxieties that I had at the time, um, I had asthma, younger. Um, I don't know. I don't know if I'm supposed to say that, but, um, anyways, I, uh, y- you know, I, I had anxiety. I had a lot of stuff mm-hmm. that I wasn't dealing with anxiety and depression and, and stuff like that, you know, but, um, I think it was really n- good for me because it really pushes your, I mean, when you're running 11 miles with a pack in your back and boots and utes and you're tired and you keep telling yourself you're going to pass out or you're going to die. You don't. Right. <laughs> That's what boot camp's for is to see what you can handle if you can handle it or you can't. Yeah. So, um, it's really, I mean, it's an experience. I think more people should have to go through it because it really teaches you what you're made of, I think. Um, and let you know, like when you think you're going to die, like you're really not, it's in your head. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, and it, I don't remember it being like, yeah, there were moments, but it wasn't, it wasn't, I felt bad for some of the other girls, um, who snapped and, um, but you know, it is what it is. What, what happens when you, when you wash out of boot camp? Like, do they just throw you on a bus and send you home? No, we had girls try to kill themselves and they were brought right back to us. We had them drinking soaps and sanitizers. They'd pump their stomach and you come right back. Because they um, wanted to leave? Oh, yeah. And they weren't letting them? Oh, they don't. That's what I was wondering. I was like, I you break. have to physically break, like, your body. And even then, you get sent to the medic platoon. Yeah. The girl, those girls will sit there for a year, year and a half until they basically get... And they get, put them back in boot camp? Well, yeah. Some of the girls will stay there and play broke until they finally get discharged as mm-hmm. failure to adapt or not able to be used. Yep. Um, like a broke toy and then other ones will just play the crazy card until they can be dismissed as not failure to adapt. Um, which, you know, we had about half the platoon drop. So, um, yeah, it's not for the week, you know, um, that's for sure. Which is the point. I mean, it's the Marines. You're not going into... You know, yeah, it's not the Air it's Force, not, right, Steve? <laughs> well, <laughs> it's not summer camp. <laughs> yeah, it, it's really funny because we had, you know, in in my squadron, uh, my training squadron in basic, uh, we had some guys that played crazy. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe they were, I'm sure a couple of them were, they were legit nuts. But um, they, a lot of people think, oh, well, if I just play crazy, then... In two days, I'm going to be sitting back at home, and it right. doesn't work like that. Mm-hmm. No, you go sit in the medical squadron for the the broke squadron. You you go there and you sit and you wait and wait, and till finally, you know, you either go back and you assimilate to mm-hmm. the military, or they find enough reason you go home. 
Um, but it, it's not like two days and then you're you're on a plane and you're back at home. No, right. we're talking some some of these guys sat in for like months. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, it's just it's meant to put you into. You would have girls on the quarter deck that they're quarter quarter decking so hard, and quarter deck is when you know you mess up. They pull you to the front, and you're doing push-ups, jumping jacks on your back, and uh, such a fast pace over and over and over and over, like you physically want to like die, but mm-hmm. you can't. And they're just screaming at you and degrading you, and in your face. Um, you know, some of the girls they have like snot coming out of their their face and tears, and they're they're like they look like hell. Their hair's everywhere. They're taking pictures of you. They're like, yeah, you're you're a piece of shit. Your family's gonna love this, you little <laughs> nasty maggot. Like, and they just like degrade you. You'd have yeah. girls pass out, and they would like literally just like get over them and like nudge them with their foot and be like, get up, you disgusting piece of shit. Like, you know, it's meant to break you it's yeah. meant to break you to the, that is the point um because you can't be in a situation and snap when you are the people to the left and the right of you are depending on you to save them and you're going to be in heat so that's the point yeah it's that's the purpose now you and you got where did you get deployed to iraq iraq 2007 yep. speaking of heat but after after basic like what was, what was your career field like? What what did you do? And where did you go for training? And where were you stationed? Uh, basic, we got to go to MCT um, in North Carolina. That's Marine Combat Training. So we did field navigation where we were like out in the woods for like a month. We was did. that Lejeune or Cherry Point? Uh, I don't know. Okay. I don't MCT, I don't know. They shipped us to the next place. Okay. I just... Um, we were in barracks for like a little bit while we got it together. And then we went out to the field. We did like land nav, um, fighting hole stuff, digging, like just all kinds of out, out, all the outdoor stuff. Um, did that there. Then from there, I went to Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, where I did my, uh, truck driving school. I was 35, 31 originally for motor T and then, um, ended up staying, and doing LVS school, which made me a 3533 LVS operator, which is a logistics vehicle system, which is a rare, there's not many of us out there. Um, and they really don't, they don't use a truck anymore. Um, that's what I got tattooed on my arm here, but, um, dragon master is what they call you. But so those are interchangeable beds. So I was able to drive multiple different types of trucks that attached that coupled with my truck head, which is a hydraulic truck system. So I drove flatbeds, tandem toes, boom and lift, um, Mack trucks, all different kinds. I could pull whatever I needed to at the time for whatever convoy I was going on. So I did that, um, then got out of there and went to Camp Pendleton where I was stationed. Um, I wasn't there long. I was attached to 1st Medical Battalion uh, truck for down at the Motor T. So um, that was mostly driving like, it was mostly um, a Navy unit. Most of my um, higher-ups were Navy because it was a medical battalion, so we were like the ambulance drivers. But um, they had wanted a volunteer for a MEW, which is a Marine Expeditionary Unit. So that's when you go on the ship, and the ship goes to all the different units or all the different ports, like uh, Singapore and Thailand. And you hear about when they go all over the world, and you dock, and you get like a day to go like here or there. So honestly, that's what I really wanted to do because I'm like, what a cool way to like go out and see the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so I raised my hand and I volunteered to be the ambulance driver on a, on a Mew. 
And um, shortly after that, they're like, oh, wait, you're an LVS operator. We actually need you in Iraq. So you're going to Iraq now. Thanks for volunteering. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> you see another part of the world. <laughs> right, right. You're not going to Asia. <laughs> Next thing I know, I'm attached to a CLB-1 Combat Logistics Battalion, a CLC-115 truck company, 3rd Platoon. So um, we met up and... Um, ended up out in Mojave Desert for pre-deployment training. It's crazy because um, this one Marine Crow, I met her on a fire watch in boot camp, and we had become friends. And uh, it's very rare that Marine, female Marines, go through training and everything together. Well, we both ended up at Motor T School together, MCT together. And then she went to 9th Com, and I went to Medical Battalion, so we split when we went to our units but then we both volunteered, so we both ended up meeting back and being in the same unit for deployment, which is just like, whoa, it was like crazy. So um, so I was lucky enough to have kind of like somebody with me through the whole ride um, for that. And then we did um, time out in Mojave Desert from, I'd say maybe like September-ish, October to... Um, about January, we deployed in February to Iraq. We hit Kuwait and then went to Iraq. And we were in Iraq from February to September, the end, uh, almost the end of September. Um, yeah. And so we, we went from Mojave Desert is like freezing cold at night when you're in the desert. It's like yeah. sleeping in the snow. And then, like, so you have every layer you could possibly find. And then, like, you're cinched inside your sack at night laying on the ground. And then, like, as the day progresses, you're, like, stripping everything off because it gets to be so hot in the desert during the day. And then you slowly have to, like, put it all back on. Like, what, do you, what was, like, top temps oh, during the day? 120? In Mojave? Yeah. I don't think it was that hot. Not, that Not in hot. December. No. It was probably closer to maybe 100, maybe a little lower. Well, but it's, it's hot when you're in the oh, desert. Well, yeah. yeah. And it's because there's such a, um, I mean, we did training um, not there, but we did it uh, just outside of Vegas um, and in the desert. And the temperature, I mean, from the daytime to nighttime, you know, once the sun starts to go down, the temperature when it's dropping 40, 50 degrees, I mean, and it's the same in Iraq. I yeah. Mean, I remember one time I was, I was freezing cold at night and I was sitting in my 60 pit. Um, cause I was a 60 gunner and I'm sitting there and, and I'm like freezing. So I'm putting on layers and I mean, it's Baghdad, Iraq, you would think, you <laughs> right. know, it's 135 during the day. We actually, I got relieved to go and get a cup of coffee and the finance, uh, the finance tent, uh, where they, they had the finance office, uh, the tent had a thermometer on the outside. It was 98 degrees and I was freezing. Wow. And I mean, then yeah, I guess you know that's when you know you're acclimated to to the environment. But I mean, the, just the drastic temperatures—it's it's incredible. Yeah, yeah. So, um, tell us about Iraq. Uh, when did you go? Um, what was your mission? I got there in uh, February of 2007. Um, so I was with a combat logistics battalion truck company. So our job basically is to transport whatever the load is, be it um, mail, supplies, detainees, troops, whatever uh, whatever it is. We Our job is to get 
that from point A to point B as fast and smoothly as we can. So um, we were stationed in TQ, which is Altacatum. Um, that's a little bit down by, it's down by uh, Fallujah, Ramadi area in the, in the lower part there. Um, so a regular, um, a regular convoy route for us would be leaving TQ, going through the city of Fallujah and over to Blue Diamond, um, and Ramadi are right next to each other. So a lot of times we'd go into Ramadi and my, I'd go in a smaller convoy off to Blue Diamond to drop a load. I did a lot of boom and lift trucks. So my, I, I carried a lot of Conix boxes. So, um, my job would be to, to drop my Conix box with my lift and pull another one up and get it to the next place I needed to take it to. So, um, yeah, we, we traveled through Fallujah's pretty much blown up by the time we got there. It was a lot of like crumbled buildings, just more radicals hiding in the rubble, uh, shooting a lot. So we're, we weren't really in firefights. Um, we were pretty much, let's get from here to here as fast and as clean as possible. Um, so driving through Fallujah was always just an, a little adrenaline rush cause you just had people shooting at you. Um, sorry to interrupt, but was there, uh, was the ID threat, was that basically over? I mean, did they have route sweepers? Yeah, we had, we had security in the front. We had a lot of IED stops where we would have to wait for EOD. Um, a couple of our guys got hit, um, in the, in the platoons throughout the tour. Um, we did not have any casualties from the IEDs, thank God. Um, we had um, a gunner get shot in one of our convoys through Fallujah, but again, no casualties. So we're very, very fortunate for that. Um, we would ride, you know, some of the times going on uranium from um, TQ to Al Assad, which is a farther north trek. Um, you get on uranium there, which is a really long road, and you would just have to drive around like a smoldering, massive crater. And the army had cleared that out right before we went. So by hitting it, um, there was a, a bridge that we would have to cross at one point that they would blow up because they tuck them up underneath the bridges and stuff. But um, I personally did not hit an ID. And, um, but yeah, the IDs were, were a thing. Um, when I was there, I was actually part of a small group of Marines that we started the forward operating base called Camp Crazy Horse. Um, I don't know if that's still there or not now, but we actually, so our job was to go and basically sit in a circle with our weapons pointed outwards and hold that space until the army came in to start building the, um, the forward operating base. So, uh, we actually had picked up some detainees while we were doing that. And it was um, like an old man, and he was teaching a, a group of young boys how to set an ID up on the road. He was giving them a, a lesson on how to do that. So we had that's to. That's crazy. It was like a Boy Scout meeting on how to. They were planning on blowing that's us crazy. up. Yeah. And so we actually had to detain them and, and hold them for a couple of days until we could get them transported out. Um, and uh, so that was an experience. Um, like when you're, when you're driving around. Mm-hmm. Like, are you constantly just thinking about, like, shit, am I about to drive over an IED? Like, like that's where my head would I'll be. I'll never like. forget the first day that I went outside the gate. And it was my first convoy. And I was driving my truck. And, you know, you, you go over and you go over and you do all this, this the simulation stuff mm-hmm. and, and all this practice. and But you know you're not getting blown up, you know. 
And then I remember right before we left for deployment, they kind of amp you up with these like kill videos where it's like these, the, like a big screen and it's like them doing things to us and then explosions. And it's like, they just, everybody's like, Aah! like, yeah, get it, get some. So they're like <laughs> getting you pissed off and like ready mm-hmm. to go. And, um, but then you get over there and like shit gets real because you're like, yeah. holy shit. Like this is real. Like this, there's no simulation. Like I'm driving this truck outside the gate bombs, yeah. bombs are happening. Guns are shooting RPGs. All the shit that I learned that could kill me is now literally coming at me. And you just, you get, I already wrote my will, you know, um, right. you kind of right at that moment, you're like, I'm going to die. Like, and you just get comfortable there. It doesn't happen right away, but you get comfortable there. You just accept it. Um, it's happening. It just is yeah. what it is. <laughs> it's, <crazy. laughs> it's just, it is what it is. And, uh, you know, and it, it got more real. So I did a lot of convoys. We did, you know, briefings and lots of convoys. felt like where some convoys would be quick. Some convoys would be 26 hours one way because we'd roll up on IEDs. Now we've got to call EOD. We're waiting for them to call. I mean, so much like the third country truckers are taking out tables and setting up tea. And, you know, we're at a security halt that long. Um, so another job I had to and from leaving the chute out of a base would be to search the third, um, the third party truckers trucks for like things they are not allowed to have, make sure there's nothing sketchy going on, no weapons. So they can't get us from the inside kind of. Um, so I would do that as well as, um, optics and CO. So I would, I would make sure everybody's NVGs were working because we had to wear night vision goggles at night mm-hmm. because when we drive at night through the city, we would have to go blackout mode. So all lights are off. You're completely blacked out. You're looking through, um, night vision goggles that are attached to your cab while you're trying to drive with those on. So. And you want to talk about messing up your depth perception. Yeah. I bet. <laughs> driving with night vision goggles on. Yeah. Yeah, we had a load come loose one time in the middle of go- going from city to city, and we had people out there scrambling around. We were, like, trying to get the load back on the truck with night vision goggles on, and it was, like, it was, sometimes it was just super sketchy, but uh, we, were, we were blessed. We definitely had some some angels with us, my platoon, for sure. Um and you mean just because you, you never hit an IED or? Like- we, I mean, we, we didn't have anybody die from hitting an IED. Um, nobody died yeah. with us. So um, that was a blessing because, you know, that's just not always the case. Yeah, so, yeah a lot of people did. Yeah. Um, so about halfway through deployment, I, um, they asked me, they came to my can and asked me, not, can is what you stay in when you're on the base. So it's like a little metal box, probably like half the size of this room. And uh, it's just like where you, you sleep and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um and asked me if I wanted to, what was then called the Lioness program. Um, so it's where like females were attached to an infantry unit. They were playing with that idea. Um, I think it was right around then is when they were kind of dabbling with that. So um, they had asked me if I wanted to do that. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, sure, whatever. Like, yeah, let's do it. Um, so I went to a little kind of like three-day co- crash course of like, 
hand-to-hand combat, like patting people down, searching people, stuff like that, because that's what I was going to be doing. So then they um, they flew me out to Korean Village, which is more in the northern part of Iraq, and then convoyed me down to the um, Arupa, which is a, a little town, city, um, by the Jordan and Syrian border. And I did traffic control points out there. So I lived in a bunker with um, an infantry unit, first LAR, and... Um, and the Iraqi army. So they had a uh, Iraqi army. We had five guys from the Iraq army living with us in a bunker. Um, and the city of Arupa on this little tiny, just a little bit of wire around our little bunker right by the city. And basically our job was, my job was to pat people down and search them and their vehicles for bombs. Um, we would get intel that we were going to get blown up or we were looking, we'd have a bullet list of a book with faces that we were supposed to get if they, you know, if they came across, Mm -hmm. we had to, um, detain them. And, um, so that was interesting. That was also another, you know, come to Jesus moment where it's like, oh, we're going to have a suicide bomber today. We have, we have intel that we have three women coming in as a suicide bomber. Well, when you're patting down a hundred plus people a day, on a 12-hour shift, I mean, more than 100, everybody's in a burka. You don't know what's going to blow, you know? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. No, that's the <laughs> I was just thinking. Everything coming at you is ready to blow, and you're just like, you just get done, you get tired of holding your breath. You're just like, okay, it is what it is. Like you said, you just kind of make terms. I'm curious, because I know you said uh, before you went in that you had some anxiety things going on. Like, this must kind of put that in perspective, I would imagine, like... Um, I, you know, I don't know if we'll have time to get to that, but I find the reverse of the things I feel like for once I was like, I was so overwhelmed that I didn't have the anxiety anymore because right. I was acclimated to a higher intensity of living. Yeah. So there was no room for anxiety. Like you have to forget about that because mm-hmm. like you just accept that like every second is you're like, you don't know yeah. when you're patting down people, you can't see their faces. They're coming at you and anything could be under that thing. You're just, you're already like any one of these is going to kill me. And it's just like, it's almost like that high level. Like if the anxiety got so high, like it just can't even yeah. happen anymore. Like you just, you just live in that. And you know, my hands are going in sweaty cracks and in places and cars I can't see. And you're, you're checking all kinds of things. And, um, and, you know, I have pictures with some. Some of them came to really love us and kids and, and and people were really proud that their kids could speak English. So it was like a very weird feeling because like some of the people you got attached to in a way mm-hmm. because they were regulars. And then but you always had to be very on guard because just because they're nice to you doesn't mean that they're right. not going to blow you up. Yeah. Um, so it was a very different feeling at 19 to have to go through that wanting to be happy that these people were the way they were, but also be like, you can kill me, so I have to treat you as such. Um, and I, I just want to pause there for a second because I think, you know, I, I kind of reflect back on my time um, and one of my times in Iraq, and I can relate to that uh, because I was an MP, uh, Security Forces in the Air Force, and we did the, the searches and... Um, you know, the scooping the hand up and, and, you know, trying to feel for, uh, devices. And I remember one of the times that uh, we had just gotten there and I was up at a, at an ECP and entry control point into the, into the base. And 
we got a phone call that there was a there was intel that there was a vehicle uh vbed uh vehicle born ied uh that was headed to our base and that it would be coming through our entry control point and to be on the lookout well it was me and one other guy up there in the middle of the night and you're you're trying you're you're asking each other and you're trying to kind of play it over in your head like okay if this vehicle pulls up and you know we recognize it as fitting the description of ebed um is this is is squatting down behind um these hesco barriers that are filled with sand um is this going to save our life or if we jump behind this concrete jersey barrier is this going to any any decides to blow it um is this going to save our life? It's a very weird position or feeling to, and you, you were 19 years old. And I just want people to kind of think about um, back when they were 19, people that are listening, when they were 19 years old, imagine um, if you weren't in the military uh, and, and put in this sort of situation, just kind of imagine being 19 years old and being in this position where you know at any point in time somebody is going to blow themselves up in front of you and try and kill you and it's just a really um it's 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 a a difficult position to be in so you wonder why 19 20 you know the young adults come back and they're they're on edge yeah. because they've been at this heightened uh, alert or heightened state of mind for months um, waiting for somebody to come up and, and kill them and thinking you said it earlier autumn that you know you're just kind of expecting that you're not going to come home um, so yeah just it kind of put it in perspective for people that are, that are listening. Like you just kind of have to put yourself in that situation and just imagine, um, you know, your 19 year old self being there. Yeah. At, at one point on the traffic control point, it was Riley and I, and we had Intel that we were going to get a, a vehicle born IED. And so we were having people stop except like more farther back from where they normally would be allowed to pull up to on either side. Cause we had a, um, basically a shoot and the people would walk or drive their cars through and we would have one at a time allowed to pass so mm-hmm. we could have a hundred yards range and um, we would search that car and have them get out of their car. We, you know, we'd have to search bottom top and out everything. Um, and then we had this halt and it was kind of sandstormy that day. So the, the you could, you didn't have good visual. And um, I remember this one car just kept creeping in and we were flashing our laser beams at them that are on our weapons, our, our green beams. And they weren't, they weren't slowing down. And we, Riley and I started to like panic. Um, I mean, not panic, but like, we're like, shit, they're not stopping. Like, this isn't good. Cause you know, we're, this is it. It's happening. Um, and, uh, Riley, you know, took it upon himself to shoot the car. He killed the people in the car, but, um, and it sounded from, I don't know what ended up happening with that down the road, um, because initially he was getting in trouble for shooting them because we didn't do the escalation of force, which is like pop a flare, do a disabling or a warning shot, mm-hmm. do a disabling shot. It's like you have 
I can see the car coming at me. Like, at what point do you just make the decision that it's you or me? Um, so he did. He ended up shooting them, and they died. Um, one of them, one of them lived in the car, um, and so that was probably the closest thing I personally witnessed to shooting someone. I did not have to shoot someone myself, um, but that was probably the closest to death outside of hoping I didn't run over a bomb that I was. I mean, I mean, obviously, like searching. Surging people on a daily basis, you're always waiting to blow up. But that was definitely a moment where I was like, oh, boy, this is this is happening. <laughs> like, this is going down. Yeah, it's intense. Um, and, that, you know, it's it's a different world over there. Um, I They took me out on, we did some patrolling in the LAV. So they took me out on a city patrol one day. And um, uh, they made me the scout hatch gunner. So in an LAV, it's kind of like a tank on wheels. And Scout Hatch Gunner is the, the rear gunner who sticks up out of the top of the, the tank and holds the gun for the six because the, the main gunner's going forward. So when I did that, they um, they had me, uh, they handed me like a 203 grenade launcher rifle and a pen flare and a handful of candy. And they said when the kids come up to the vehicle, throw the candy, and if they don't do that, then shoot them with a pen flare because you don't want to have to actually shoot them. Um, so that was definitely a, a, um, a memory. You're sitting out of a tank and kids are chasing you down and um, you're throwing candy, hoping that they chase the candy. So you don't have to shoot them with a pen flare. So then you don't have to actually shoot them. Yeah, um, it's, cra- it's a crazy position to be in. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, they're kids. Yeah. And, but, and they just wanted, I mean, bottles of water. Yeah, yeah. They, they're Crackers. running around barefoot and, and got nothing better to do. And they just wanted whatever you would throw them. And, um, you know, we were their parade. Mm-hmm. And uh, you have to consider the fact that any one of them has a bomb strapped to their body. And it's you or them. That's crazy. And uh, so that was, a, that was definitely something I'll never forget is being in that moment of having a 203 and a pen flare and sitting with my head out of the back of a LAV <laughs> and uh, like it's just a different world you don't think of these things when you're going to Target you know <laughs> no I can't imagine you don't <laughs> so, so and so what did you so you know to and to Steve's point and you know talking about Target or whatever but like so what what's life for you when you get back like what did you how was that experience for you coming home was it you know a while before you're able to kind of like relax yeah I think the hardest part of my military experience was probably coming back because um, you lose so much purpose, I feel like. Uh, I Coming back compared coming to being there because you, you, you have a mission. You Acclimating. Have a, yeah. The intensity is just different. I mean, yeah. you're, you know, everything's just driving. You're not able to just drive over everything. Mm-hmm. Like, you have to stay in your lane. <laughs> what do you mean? Like, what do you mean I have to, like, have you know. seen Steve drive? <laughs> I can't just ram vehicles. <laughs> like, driving under bridges. You know, you don't think of these things as a person, like, but you anticipate there being a bomb under a bridge, like a bag of trash on the side of the road. Now you're, like, your heart races when you go buy a garbage bag that's on the side of the road because you have to guess that that might be a bomb that somebody left, you know? Stuff like that is what you don't think of when you yeah. come back. Normal people don't think of. Um, 
I think it was a struggle. I watched myself along with, I had to have surgery immediately when I came back because I had a cyst that I had gotten while I was there. Um, and then I had two back-to-back surgeries directly after my, my, me coming home. So that did not help because then I was on pain meds for a while yeah. <laughs> dealing with depression, anxiety, and I wasn't sleeping for like a week at a time. Um, so that was a struggle for me. That was a really rough time for me. I actually wanted to go back. I had, they, they took me, I didn't go back to the motor pool. I, they put me in the battalion building. Um, and I was the ammo tech and barracks manager and doing some desk billets, which was like torture to me because yeah. I'm not a sitter. Um, I don't sit well. I don't do paperwork well. Um, and that was driving me insane. So I actually had gone and tried to get on Lieutenant Plummer's TO to go back because I wanted to go back. I just wanted mm-hmm. to go back. I hated it here. People pissed me off. If I had to stand in one more grocery line and listen to somebody say that they haven't had a break in four hours, I was going to lose my shit. You know, like you just yeah. little things that like you never noticed before. You're like, Pit. and I didn't know what to do with that. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what to do with that. I had no idea. Um, these weren't my people. These, I don't know anybody, you know, like I wanted to be back where I was safe with my group doing one thing. When you're over there, you have one thing. There's no phone calls, emails, nothing. It is just, there's no world around except you wake up, you have one mission. That is the only thing you do and you stay alive. And then you have the people that are with you and it's your bubble. And like, you come back here and there's just so much noise and you got to call and remember this and do that. And you got 15 things to do. And it's just like a day is overwhelming. Hmm. I felt, I felt for me, my personal experience. Um, I can't say that's the same for everyone. I'm sure you're not alone. My personal experience is I was unbelievably alone because I wasn't with my group that I just trained to stay alive with and just spent the last eight months with nothing but them. Um, learning how to make the best of a horrible situation Um, and now I'm with all these people who don't get me, don't understand me. I don't have a a purpose really as much. I'm not saving anything. Nothing's Mm -hmm. extreme. Nothing's, um, you know, I'm pruning the rose bush because that's what the office of the battalion wants today. Um, and I'm like, this is bullshit. Like, I don't know. It was, it was a dramatic change at a young age of intensity and you're just kind of like, Welcome back. Yeah. Like, you know, fall in place. Go do something with yourself. And you don't really know what to do with yourself. And I didn't. I was, you know, I had a rough patch. I had a, a few of us did. Um, you know, and I, I did. I, I got into help. Um, but I struggled for a little while. And I, I had to go on different antidepressants and stuff like that to try to regulate myself. I did counseling and Um, it was a rough, it was a little bit of a rough road, but I will say I wouldn't change it to save my life. Um, it changed my world. It changed my life. It changed who I am. It showed me what I'm made of. It showed me, um, what won't kill me. Even if I think something's going to kill me, it's not going to kill me. Well, not necessarily, but you know, the good with the bad. I'm, I'm definitely defensive. I definitely don't trust. (laughs) I definitely am hypervigilant. Um, And, you know, I still have my anxieties, but I mean, it definitely changed my life for the better in so many ways because some of the things I went through and the lessons I learned then, which I didn't even resonate with me or realize what they were, um, I'm still looking back and reflecting and realizing like, oh, 
that's how that affected me or that's how that pertains to my life now and how I'm still going and how I'm becoming who I'm becoming because of that moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm still having those revelations. So like, you know, yes, it was an experience a lot of people wouldn't want to deal with or couldn't imagine dealing with, but I'm like so grateful for it because it just, it taught me a lot and made me who I am today. So that's awesome. Yeah. And appreciate sharing all that. I know some of that's, Probably not always easy to talk about some of that stuff, but appreciate it. Thank you. And I know that because we did so much messing around before the show started that we're we're getting short on time. But I do want to ask, you know, if someone uh, is hearing what you're saying and they're going through something similar, like, was there any, I don't want to say, you know, one thing, but, you know, what really helped you decide like, hey, I need to get some help. And then when you did get help, like what, what? what did that look like for you to start off? I mean, I guess I would imagine the first step is probably the hardest, right? Yeah. Um, I, I was, I was, I mean, I was, I got a DWI, mm-hmm. um, a couple months after coming back and I, I, I was at a birthday party and it was all the noise of the birthday party was so chaotic to me that I couldn't handle it. Um, and I left and I, I grabbed a bottle off the counter and I went to the beach and I drank it by myself. And I was just like, I don't belong here. <laughs> like, I'm so alone and so surrounded by people. This is crazy. And I totally get that feeling for people because you can be completely surrounded by people and still yet completely alone. So it was that feeling of like, so alone that I didn't know I didn't know what the point was and that's kind of, but I didn't want to die, mm-hmm. you know? So I was stuck somewhere in, in between that. Like I, I wasn't ready to give up, but I didn't know what to do. And, um, it's not easy because, you know, you don't look strong getting help. At least that's what you're made to think, Sure, you know, don't be a pussy and, you know, suck it up Marine and, you know, but, um, I think it's, I, two of my platoon, My corporal and my doc killed themselves after we came back. Um, I actually just talked to my corporal's mom not that long ago on the phone. I called her, and he was one of the most gung-ho Marines I've ever met. He loved teaching. He taught us how to encrypt calm. He was really, really strong about keeping us alive with what he taught us in Iraq, and he put himself in front of a train um, on Christmas Eve, right after we got back. And, uh, and then my doc, who was one of his best friends was, you know, not far behind him. And, um, it's not easy. I've seen too many people end their lives because they think that nobody will understand what they're going through. And I don't know the answer, but I know that there's a lot of people out here who want to go through it with you at least. (laughs) If you can't necessarily find out the answer, find the people who can go through it with you. And I haven't found that even yet, but I, I, these people come to me in my life all the time. And I think that's the universe working for me. I just had a female veteran who didn't know me get in my chair two weeks ago. And she's like, Oh my God, there's a whole system of people here and we get together and we eat pizza and we do this and we do that. And like there's, it's out there if you want it. So like, I got help, but it, 
it's like, it's always a work in progress. Like anything you always yeah. have to, it's like entrepreneurship. It's like everything. It's like, it doesn't go away. It's never going to go away. You just got to find out how to work with it and make it better and use that anger and that anxiety. You know, you're meant to have these emotions to protect yourself, but you can also use them to fuel yourself for the better. And it's just, I don't know. I guess that's, I don't yeah. know if that answers that. <laughs> oh, I think it answers it enough. For <laughs> We're sure. here. We're here. You just have to, it's hard to want to. It's, it's yeah. hard to want to sometimes because it's uncomfortable. Yeah. Which is why you have to push yourself sometimes to be uncomfortable to grow, hence the 75 hard. Yeah. So it's getting uncomfortable is the only way to grow. And that's how you work through anything. Yeah. So. Well, we appreciate you coming on. and Thank you so much uh, for having me. At risk of keeping you here all day, we'll uh, <laughs> let you get out of here. But, you know, thank you for your service. Thank you. And, uh, you know, that's it. Stephen, anything else to? No. Um, really, the only thing that I, I can add on there is Audible's talking about, you know, there are people out there that, that are, are willing to listen, willing to help. And um, part of that doesn't, uh, a lot of veterans think that the only thing available to them is uh a military organization um, sitting around a, a bar stool uh, sharing war stories. Um, and so a lot of veterans kind of stay clear of things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's there's organizations that are available to everybody, uh, every veteran um, that is going through uh, a difficult time. And my, my contact information should be on the website. I think so. Um, and if you're one of those individuals and you're uh, a veteran and you're dealing with something, then uh, reach out to me and I can certainly uh, put you in touch with uh, individuals that will, will listen and uh, be able to help you. That's awesome. So, Absolutely. Well, thanks again. Thank you Thank both. You. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Yeah. And thank you for listening. And uh, hopefully uh, Steve and I can... Start recording some more episodes here. Get on, get on our game, and and get some more guests on here. So, if you know anyone, or you are someone that wants to come on the show, tell your story, reach out to us. Uh, fov, right? Fov at yep. glensfallstoday.com. That's it. All right. Thanks, everybody. All right. Thank you. Thank you.